The Crux of the Matter, Episode 30, Preaching the Gospel, Part 2. Hello and welcome to The Crux of the Matter, the show by pastors, for pastors. This is Pastor Todd Peppercorn. And I'm Professor Scott Stigmeyer. How are you doing today, Scott? Today's a good day, Todd. Today is a good day. Yeah. yeah. We are uh, pre-recording this episode because uh, uh, the week when our dear hearers hear this, I will be sitting in on a uh, continuing ed class with Professor Jim Busher from Fort Wayne. So, so, so now uh, you've given away the magic of the whole. Thing. I know. I'm sorry. I'm uh, I'm not good with magic. So we record these. Uh, yes. What can I say? So we are going to continue our conversation, which it just seems like moments ago we finished um, talking about preaching preaching the gospel. And last week we talked about uh, a lot about uh, preaching to the whole person, kind of the relationship between cognition and emotion, and uh, and how we are how we are to do that. Uh, what I want to talk about a little bit here is uh, is the topic of the imagination. And uh, like last week, this sort of uh, this sort of began for me as almost a side comment by uh, by Doctor by Doctor Kleinig, and the side comment was that, uh, and you tell me what you think of this, Scott, um, was that the the biblical and Christian use of the imagination in preaching should uh, should speak to the hearer about what is. Not what is not. Mm. Nice. Well, that's interesting. So, yeah, because I think that that's that's almost the opposite of what we usually yeah. think about with imagination, and that's yeah, why that's it what, that's what me, I was so. going to say. That's exactly yeah. what my comment was going to be. Is that's, yeah. that's kind of counterintuitive. He was talking about the imagination, and he's saying, "Speak about what is, what is not." Mm-hmm. So, what is must be something beyond the five senses. And, you know, and we, we tend to not want to think that way. We tend to sort of say, well, you know, if it's real, it's sensory. And, yeah. Well, and, and, and I mean, of course you can, and you can, you can hear where he goes and kind of what he gets with this just in the words, word imagination, you know, mm-hmm. to image mm-hmm. something. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, we are created in the image of God. So, so when someone sees me or you, they have a window into into who is God. I mean that yeah. into what is. So yeah. so we foster the imagination. Now now the negative example that he used for this, um, which is equally vivid, uh, is pornography. Mm. That what happens in pornography is that one fixates on what is not. Yeah. In a relationship that does not exist, in in feelings and emotions that um that are not that are not real, that are contrived and artificial. And uh and and I found that absolutely fascinating. And and I think that that has so many implications when we talk about preaching. And and especially so so what am I doing in preaching the gospel? Is I am I am I am painting a picture for the person of who they are in Christ by faith. Uh, I am uh, I am connecting them to our Lord through through the embodied Word. You know that uh, you know that living voice of the gospel language that we get with Luther and elsewhere. 
uh, I am drawing them into the present. I mean, you think of you think of the Book of Hebrews and how the, and how the Book of Hebrews has that. Uh, uh, you know, as soon as I said it, I knew I was I, the the chapter was going to escape me. It's a little later in the book, like nine, where where uh, where the author Hebrews really paints this pictures picture of how we are. You know, but but now you have drawn near to the heavenly Jerusalem, to you know, to all of this. That that what truly great preaching does is is engages me and draws me into the life of God in Christ Jesus, and that is what is. Yeah, and that's imagination. I think where we stumble is the popular use of that word. Right. The popular use of that word, I think, implies unreal. Yes. Because we'll say, you know, my imaginary friend. Right. Or, you know, and it's, you know, it's all in his imagination. Mm-hmm. As if to say he's deluded or out of his mind or, you know, right. that these are just simply fictions. And what we're trying to do is, is capture something that is maybe not visible to the eye, but is perceptible you know i mean but it's, it's no, still nevertheless that, real well right. I mean, if you think of it in the imagination um th- this is really going to be a crazy rabbit hole i'm just warning <laughs> Go um, for it. in the in, you know in the my imaginary friend of the you know of the child or whomever what they are doing is they are talking about creating yeah they are they are enacting imperfectly and not in the same way but they are enacting their image of god that that to be god is to is to be love which is to give of oneself to another and to be love means to create you know this is why in marriage and family the the generation of children is kind of intrinsic to the concept mm-hmm. um and and so even if it is imperfectly or or not not in quite the same fashion what that is doing is divine does that does that make sense mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah absolutely i mean cs lewis and jrr tolkien used to talk about you know sub creation you know right. we are not creators in the in the you know original sense in the highest sense but we participate in creation we you know this is another way in which perhaps we are images of god is that human beings can do this we you know i'm going to use the word fantasize but that's probably not the best word either but that something is you know we can picture something that may not be you know temporally readily at hand right um, we can well, picture well you think things. of you think of an ar- architect okay yeah, an architect right. is going to get a picture in their head yeah of what this what this building is going to look like and then they bring it to pass right well that is that is creation. that is the use of the imagination that is a sub right. sub creation to use that sort of language now it, here's here's one of the rabbit holes and we can we only have to peek down it a little way scott but um there is a whole uh whole genre of computer games that play off of this same motif 
Uh, it was interesting. I was playing one of these games uh, called Terraria with my son Richard last night, and I noticed that on the uh, uh, that on the kid iPad he he had been doing some organizing of these games, you know, because he's you know he's a nine year old boy. He's you know, yeah. he's all about the games. You know how that works. Yeah, sure. But uh, and and so he had fast games, you know, all, all kinds of different categories, and there was one category that was world building games. Hmm. And I had not given him that category. <laughs> so and he so, named it that. He named it that. Uh-huh. And so he and and he had um and he had in there Minecraft, which is the one that I'm particularly thinking of, but also Terraria and Roblox and a bunch of other games that have um many of these characteristics. I mean, Minecraft is I think still the most popular game in the world. Hmm. It was bought by Microsoft recently, and it's a world-building game. You know, you can you can go go into YouTube and you will find people that have recreated, subcreated um, the Taj Mahal. You know, all of these major architectural buildings and these these extravagant, crazy th- places. And what they have done is this is world building. This is this is creation, and and it's very different from the uh, World of Warcraft or Call of Duty type um, role playing game. That basically involves killing other people so that you're so that you end up at the top of the heap. Yeah, very different genre of game. Oh, and sure. It's, it's and it's one that I think is uh, spawned by the imagination mm-hmm. and by the desire to create. Yeah, I, there's something there's something natural in humanity in human beings yeah. to do this this yeah. is this is what we do by nature i mean this isn't just christians who who do this uh pagans can create marvelous art of course it, but but it is a, it is a way that differentiates us from all other parts of creation um and it is godlike yeah you know i read an article a few years ago and i can't remember the author's name but i think it was in touchstone or first things in which the author said that this is the problem with Protestantism. Protestantism lacks imagination. This is why <laughs> yes, we I so, remember it. Oh, we this is why we so often can't is. be sacramental. You yep. know, that's why we have trouble, even as Lutherans. You know, sometimes we struggle with being sacramental because we don't have a rich, imaginative life. And uh, Catholic authors, for instance, I mean, you know, there's, you know, the Catholic Church, of course, is all about the sacraments, and and they produce great artists as well. Why is the Catholic Think Church Flannery O'Connor? Yeah. Think Flannery O'Connor, Walker Percy. You know, you yeah. know. Uh, this guy named Hanson now that's kind of cool author and and you know Tolkien is a great example sure. um of of people that um uh because of their love of the sacraments and their understanding of the sacraments or maybe it's the other way around because they have a rich imagination they have no they stumbling were drawn, block right? right they were drawn to the sacraments they can understand how this can be body and, and bread they can understand how this how this wine can be blood they, mm-hmm. because you know they're imagining it not that it's you know, fiction. Not that that means it's non-real. Right. right. It's not delusional, but they can imagine something that they don't necessarily see. They right. see it without seeing it. And, and, and of course, there's another word that 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 fits in that, and that of course is the word mystery. Yes, you know, that they are absolutely that imagination and mystery are are kind of hand in glove. That absolutely that there are things happening that are beyond my beyond my ken <laughs> they are beyond uh-huh. my knowing or understanding or perception that doesn't mean that they aren't real <laughs> that means that i cannot fully grasp the depth of what's happening they they might even be the most real things yes. you know and and the, the things that we identify as truth and as reality 
might simply be shimmering images of of the bigger realities in some right. ways. You know, because for instance, you know, uh, because I've been studying this, you know, people today are so obsessed and probably always are so obsessed with sexuality and sex. Right. And, you know, you mentioned pornography. And um, we tend to think of that as being something that's just very, very real. But what people kind of indicate, you know, what they're what they're going after is, in fact, the illusion. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and and the reason that they're missing the point of sex is because sex is itself reflective of a higher unseen reality, and that is the love of God for the world, and right. you know, and the, even even further, the love that's experienced between the persons of the Trinity, that the self giving and all that. And so they fixate on what is not that sex, not that bodily sex is, is, I'm not saying it's illusory, um, but they're fixating on an image of an image. And, right. and, and, and that's why we get so confused. Maybe, maybe what would be helpful for Protestantism and even Lutherans would be doing More things sex. to stir up. Yeah. Or sex, <laughs> Sorry. It would be to just came out. to stir up the imagination a little more. And, and um, how do we do that? How do we help our yeah. people? in our congregations develop a sac or nurture a sacramental imagination. Sacramental imagination. I like the, uh, I like the sounds of that. And you did a podcast on that with, uh, yeah, yeah, we did. We did. We talked about Chesterton. Yeah. Chad Kendall. Yeah. Yeah. Let's put a link to that in the show notes too. Okay. Yeah. We Um, talked about Chesterton and his talking about the sacramental imagination. That's where some of this is coming from. Sure. 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 I'm just making a note of that. Um, I want to read a, a, a quotation from, from Luther, one of Luther's, one of Luther's sermons that I think embodies this, this imagination language here really well. Okay. So this is a, this is from Luther's works, volume 31, page 349. Since these promises of God are holy, true, righteous, free, and peaceful words, full of goodness, the soul that clings to them with a firm faith will be so closely united with them and altogether absorbed by them, that it will not only share in all their power, but will be saturated and intoxicated by them. If a touch of Christ healed, how much more will this most tender spiritual touch, this absorbing of the word, communicate to the soul all things that belong to the word? Hmm. Well, that's imagination there. It is imagination and it's also emotional. <laughs> yeah. You know, because we were talking about the emotions. I mean, Luther's not just talking about understanding concepts. You know, he's talking right. about something oh, that's, right. that's effective, affective. Yeah. So, so there is a, a big question in there about, okay, so again, what is my goal in preaching the gospel? My goal in preaching the gospel is creating faith. And that means I would, I would contend engaging the, uh, the hearts, the minds, the soul, the body of, of the person. That means using rhetorical device, but a, a ministerial use of rhetorical device. That it, that is to say that, that Rhetorical device appealing to emotions or to logic or to, uh, to, uh, to authority, to the imagination that using these things is in service of and reflective of the word, not, not its own thing. Right. You know, and that's so, where people mess it up. Yep. And, and so, uh, I, I have heard more than a couple sermons that were very imaginative 
and maybe even had great, great stories included in them. All kind. I mean, clearly a, a wonderful speaker and clearly someone that thought very, very carefully about what they were saying and how they were going to say it. But the, the, there was a disconnect between what the word speaks and what the, and what the preacher is trying to communicate. And so we have to we have to constantly be be on guard that our our use of imagination, our use of our use of emotion, and our use of of cognition of the intellect is actually in service to the word, and not the mm-hmm. other way around. We can never let the word become a pretext for whatever I am thinking or feeling or imagining at a given moment. So, so you, you kind of touched on this. You started this with the word story. Mm, yeah. Does did Kleinig talk about the role or the element of narrative in in preaching? I'm just curious because I can see <laughs> um, where that would be both useful and potentially. Well, he he did, but not a lot. I'll, okay. I'll I'll say that, and um, he did in the sense that a story, a narrative. Is much is generally speaking much more engaging to the hearer than a uh, than a lecture or a doctrine. Th- this is why, quite frankly, one of the many reasons. But this is why I really never preach on Paul's epistles. Not mm. that I'm opposed to Paul's epistles. I'm a big fan right. of Paul. Um, right. Got all of his albums, etc. But um, but because they are not narrative, they are not uh, they they. They are in themselves virtually sermons, and mm-hmm. so that so that kind of, in my mind, uh, typically makes me one step farther removed from the words and actions of Jesus. You know, and Todd, if I may, this is one thing I've been pondering, and maybe this is another podcast, or maybe you know, I've often wondered about that. Why yeah. does Paul spend so little time? He he almost never quotes Jesus. Yep. You're right. And never tells the stories. That I would think he would reflect on the Gospels or the, the some of the stories. Well, anyway, I, th- that's not that's for a great discussion. question. But I've wondered why he doesn't use the stories of Jesus in his epistles more. Yeah. At well, least allus- Especially in them. comparison to like Peter. Right. You know, Peter's epistles or John, right. Right. they both are, I, they do. I think, much more uh, closely tied into the narrative. And that's not not a better or worse. I don't mm-hmm. mishear me here, but uh, no, or James Paul. for that matter. Right. I mean, James right. is virtually a sermonic version of the Sermon on the Mount, mm-hmm. you know, in many respects. So, mm-hmm. uh, so right. yeah, that's a that's a great question. I don't have an answer to that. No, um, I don't either. I just but, it's just probably because he was a Pharisee and the way he was educated and something. Well, like that. and it could also be because they aren't sermons. Right, they're letters. They're letters. Right, they're and that is, and so that has a different a different purpose and intent mm-hmm. behind it. Now, compare that to the book of Hebrews, which in all likelihood was a sermon and okay. uses all kinds of rhetorical device and ties into the life of Jesus um, a little bit more directly and I would say ties into the life of Jesus through the lens of Leviticus, among other things. <laughs> so yeah. so yeah. Hebrews is packed with imagination and and kind of drawing to what is. So yeah, that's, that's yeah. a really good question. Really good question. So do you, I mean you know we know that there's there are, are abuses but what are the good uses of narrative and I, I'm like you when I preach the gospel 
um, I mean, when I preach on the gospel reading, right. which is almost all the time, um, if I don't preach on the gospel reading, occasionally I'll preach on the Old Testament, but I would say 99.5% of the time I'm pre- when I preach, I preach on the gospel yep, reading. Me too. On the, in the divine service. And um, what I sometimes do, and sometimes more effectively than other times, is I retell the reading. We've yep. read it. Yeah. And I don't, you know, I retell it. And in the course of retelling it, hopefully weave ourselves, weave our story into that. Yeah. Paint, that's paint ourselves attempt. into the picture as it were. Yeah. 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 I, at least that's, that's the attempt I, I make at least some of the time. And, and sometimes it's easier to do than other times. Some, some readings are very, um, they almost, some sermons almost tell themselves, you know, write themselves because of this, but, right. uh, you know, are there, are there good Lutheran preachers that are doing this effectively? Because it seems like what we tend to do is sort of draw, we abstract the story. We take the story and say, okay, here are three principles. I'm going to preach to you law and gospel, but I'm going to make sure I'm going to preach an outline. And it could, this outline could fit for any reading. You know, right. It doesn't have to be this reading, and I, maybe I'm going to use a word or two out of it. And I think that's not textual. I think we have a problem. We sometimes stumble into that problem. Hmm. Yeah, that's a good. Uh, I have to think about that one because there. Well, you know, how do we how do we preach textually? I want you know using the law gospel paradigm. Of right. course, is fine, but you know, so many times I've heard or even written a sermon where I look at it later and think, you know what. I could just change it, right? Just three change a words, couple words and have a totally and it would different fit text in another week. Yeah, yeah, and that's yeah. usually a sign of a crappy sermon for me, at least. Uh, uh, for me, it is, and and I don't think I'm doing the best, the best job. I mean, it may be all true. Now, right. I'm not saying there's any false doctrine in it, or that it's you know, but um, is it textual? Is it preaching the gospel, the the reading? Yeah, um, and. Maybe we're not doing our hearers the best service when we when we when we do that. Anyway, it's just a thought, and I think you know, trying to get back into the narrative of the gospel itself, and that's using the imagination and emotion. That totally. That reminds me of uh, something that uh, Doctor Arthur just said to me once a few years ago. I taught a a demon class at the seminary, and I preached and uh, was a celebrant at chapel. And afterwards, <laughs> afterwards, he says to me. Well, Todd, I totally disagreed with your exegesis, but you can preach the gospel. <laughs> like, hmm. This is exactly what, what you know. What is we're that a, is that a com- I, I'm not sure if that's a compliment <laughs> or an insult. I think it's probably both. So, uh, you know, you preach the gospel, but maybe he didn't think. But you didn't preach the, the text, text. <laughs> right? I I think that that was what his implication was. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, and it, I'm sure it was meant in uh, in good. Good rapport. But oh yes, absolutely. I do that too. I, I I know I do that. I know I'm guilty of doing that. And I've heard other preachers that do that as well. I critique other preachers for doing that. Yep, me too. Well, just to uh, just for fun, um, the uh, the reading the the Old Testament and Gospel reading for the eleventh Sunday after Pentecost. So that's um, for you uh, Series B folks. That's August 9th. Um. And for most of our hearers, that was probably the previous Sunday. Uh, the Old Testament reading is First Kings nineteen one to eight. Okay, uh, so if you have a Bible and you want to follow along, you can do so. This is when uh, when Jezebel tells sends a message to Elijah and tells him that uh, tells him that I'm I'm going to kill you or I'm going to be killed by my gods if I don't kill you. 
Okay, and Elijah, you know, run away, run away. Yeah. Elijah is afraid. He runs away, uh, goes to Be- goes to Beersheba, and, and the angel of the Lord appears to him and and feeds him and cares for and cares for him. Uh, he got that great line in verse seven: "Arise and." And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank, went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. Well, so in this text, you have lots of fear and strengthening or encouraging language. And twice the angel of the Lord, um, whom I would – I would put in shorthand as Jesus, but the, twice the angel of the Lord touches Elijah and and then feeds him. Well, that well that evokes an emotional connection, right? Touching, mm-hmm. oh um, yeah, and and a, a a paternal provision language. You know, feeds him, cares for him, keeps him alive, strengthens him. And a recognition of Elijah's weakness, the journey is too great for you, and a recognition that because this journey is too great for you, you need help from outside. So so that's a perfect example of where, you know, that's a text that I think is very easy to preach the hearer into this position, right? Yeah. Um, to, to kind of paint this picture of... Uh, all of us have had moments of victory when everything has gone great and then all of a sudden we turn around and we get smacked and recognize that I am incapable of doing this again and and our Lord through his word and meal uh, says this is too much for you. I know that you cannot do this on your own and God's work actually feeds me and strengthens me for the journey. Okay, that's and, – and, and what the angel didn't do, did not do – is give to Elijah a, a, a set of theses on why he shouldn't be afraid. Right. You know, he 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 did some. You know, he he touched him. I think that's probably very profound. Yep. And and fed him and spoke to him. Yep. Um. You know. So you know he's he's working with him physically. He's working with him. I mean, the touching is is got to be you know some kind of a comfort measure, right? Of course. And um. You know the, that he's comforting him. In a in a non-verbal way, plus he's showing sympathy with his words. You know, that's a really good example, I think, of what we're trying to figure out how to do with our sermons. Yep. Uh, you know, how do we touch people using our language um, without being manipulative and without you know just throwing. You know, I don't mean just throwing illustrative material at the wall and hope something sticks. Right. But but something that that sort of naturally sort of works there. Um, you know, he, he, and he feeds him, of course. And that's, that's where we want to remember that the sermon is not the most important thing we're going to do that day. That's right. Um, you know, at best, it's, it's one of two most important things. And arguably, it is slightly less important <laughs> than the fact that we're going to be communing with Jesus' body right. and blood. Now, that is also in the context of John 6, ah. where, where you have the gospel, which is, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So, uh, yeah. so you've got that, you know, very explicit connection between the angel of the Lord giving Elijah bread and Jesus, I am the bread of, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So, man, 
Yeah. So there's this great line um, and and also interesting in this John 6, this is where the Jews grumble, you know, isn't this Joseph's son? Don't we know his don't we know his parents? You know, who who is he to say I've come down from heaven? What do the Jews the Jews cannot imagine that Jesus' words are real? Yeah. They cannot they cannot see this. They cannot get the picture of reality, which is true. And which we know by faith. So they suffer from a lack of imagination as much as maybe a lack of knowledge. Yes. You know, but yes. they may have known things. I mean, they, you know, these Pharisees knew their Bibles, but yep. they didn't know them in the, you know, they didn't know them rightly because they couldn't imagine it. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I wonder if I'll, uh, I'll get called a heretic for that one. So uh, I don't find so. out. We'll find out because that's a – I think that's a very interesting – an interesting line. But that's a perfect example of how – Okay. Preaching the gospel does not just mean um, telling the information but means yeah. addressing fears, addressing, uh, addressing, addressing the heart, addressing the imagination. Yeah. Think yeah. we talked about this enough for now? I think that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. I think I'd, I, I know for myself that this has given me a lot to think about. And uh, I think that's a good uh, that's a good approach along the way. So I think well, if you would like to respond to us on this, you can go to the crux of the matter dot net slash podcast slash thirty one, and no, I'm sorry, slash thirty crux of the matter dot dot net slash podcast slash thirty, and I will hope that you will do so. Uh, you can also go to. Uh, and email us at feedback at the crux of the matter dot net. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter and anywhere else that fine electrons are purveyed. So, Scott, what's bringing you joy this week? Pray tell. Okay. Okay. Well, I've been teaching and talking a lot about marriage and over the last couple of years been writing about marriage a little bit and human sexuality. And so there's a book that I don't remember if I've mentioned before, but um, it's called Men and Women Are from Eden. Eden by Mary Healy. And I'm going to mention a companion volume to that that is new to me in case I mentioned this one before because I think I might have. And that is called, I just got this yesterday, called Good News About About Sex and Marriage by Christopher West. And these are two books that are both about John Paul II's Theology of the Body and Teaching on Marriage. And I think that we really need to, um, as Lutherans, kind of get over this a hurdle that yes, this is from a pope, and yes, this has got some uh, uniquely Roman Catholic elements to it. You know, it talks about priestly celibacy, it talks about contraception in certain ways. But I think that the teaching about marriage and how it start, you know, our, our doctrine of marriage starts in Genesis one and two, and you know, he, he the, both these authors bring in the actual teachings of Jesus, where he mentions marriage, and of course Saint Paul in Ephesians five and other things and major themes of Scripture. These are both very lay-oriented books that I think any interested person, someone who's kind of you know a little bit up on theology in general, but a lay person could pick up. And the, this, neat, this new one, new to me, good news about sex and marriage, is kind of a catechism. It's written in questions and answers hmm. about you know questions about all aspects of sexuality and sexual morality. And he answers it from the perspective of John Paul II's Theology of the Body. Very helpful. I think we can gain a lot from this. Cool. Cool. Well, um, 
I have the I have the first one. I do not have the second one. So I will uh, look forward to uh, adding that to my big stack of books on marriage that I'm trying to read right now. So nice. fun, fun indeed. Nice. Um, the book that I'm going to recommend for this week is uh, is one called uh, Postilla, which is a apostle is a uh, is a collection of sermons. And this um, this postle, Postilla Volumes One and Two are a collection of sermons by Johann Gerhard, and uh, I will have a link to these in the show notes. Uh, these are his his sermons through the church year. Follows the uh, historic one year lectionary, and what I have always loved about Gerhard's sermons, and as much as it pains me to say it, I I think I may love his sermons more than his dogmatics. Um, don't tell Ben Mays, I'm sorry, but. Uh, but what I love about his sermons is his use of the imagination. Many, if not all of his sermons, begin in the Old Testament and kind of weave their way through the Old Testament into the gospel. And he does such an incredible job of painting, uh, of painting this picture of our Lord and of, and of preaching faith into the hearers. Um, Gerhard's really arguably one of my favorite Favorite preachers, I often turn to his uh, uh, to his writings for inspiration, if a yeah, for lack of a better term. So, do you know these volumes, rich. Scott? Yeah, I've got I've got um, I've got some of Gerhard's sermons. Um, yeah. It's been a while since I've looked at them, but uh, I, like you, I, I find them to be very rich, and they're not dry. I mean, they're they're products of their times, but they're not they're not dry like his dogmatics can be. Yeah, in and, my opinion. And, uh, and I really don't mean to speak ill of his dogmatics. They're serving a different no. purpose. And I should right. mention, uh, and I'll put this in the show notes too, since we had this two-section uh, commentary or conversation on the law, that uh, that his volume on the law in the Gerhard uh, dogmatics, it's called the Theological Commonplaces, the volume on the law just came out. I just got it a few days ago. I haven't had a chance to spend a lot of time in it yet, but I'm looking forward to reading that as well. So, cool. cool. Lots of good stuff to think about. I have no idea what we're talking about next week, but uh, I am confident that something will show up. We'll come up with something. I have no doubts. Any final words for our dear listeners? <clears throat> no, thanks for listening. Yep. Thank you indeed, and we will see you next week. Bye now.